Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and thanks for joining us for this episode of New Books in Philosophy, which is part of the New Books Network. I'm Robert Talese. I'm professor of philosophy at Vanderbilt University. I co-host the program with Carrie Figder, Malcolm Keating, and Sarah Tyson. My guest today is Alexander Kirshner. Alex is associate professor of political science at Duke University. He's a political theorist specializing in democratic theory. Now, he's just published a new book with Yale University Press. It's titled Legitimate Opposition. The idea of legitimate political opposition is familiar. A decent political order permits citizens, parties, coalitions, and so on to challenge those in power. Under those conditions, there's an ongoing nonviolent contest for political power. Now, typically, the value of legitimate opposition is understood in terms of the value of democracy. Here, the idea is that democracy is damaged or subverted when practices of legitimate opposition are suppressed. However, this familiar account opens questions about the value of legitimate opposition under conditions that are not perfectly or even satisfactorily democratic. It also obscures real-world practices of legitimate opposition that are themselves not allied with democratic norms, like equality. Now, in his book, Legitimate Opposition, Alex Kirshner develops and defends a conception of legitimate opposition that's not so tightly tethered to democracy. On this view, the value of opposition lies with the value of political agency. Now, as usual, there's a lot to talk about and a lot of interesting stuff afoot. But why don't we begin, as we usually do, with our guest. Hello, Alex. Hi, Bob. How thanks are you for today? having me. I'm, I'm well, thanks. That's great. Well, I'm, I'm really excited to talk about your book. Um, but before we get into that, um, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, so I think uh, what's relevant for this conversation is that I grew up in Chicago in the 1980s. And one of my most salient memories from that time was the election of Harold Washington. He was an African-American politician, and it shook the city. Uh, it was like a, earth, a political earthquake in Chicago when he was elected. And what I remember, I mean, among other things, was that my happiness, my parents' happiness that Washington was elected, but the response of many people in Chicago to his election and to his candidacy was outside of the norms of what uh, we thought was democratic. I mean, the Democratic Party rebelled against him. Things couldn't get done. People were outwardly outwardly racist against him. And both his election and the response uh, to his election sparked in me, a kind of longstanding interest in democracy and a longstanding concern that many of the people who inhabit democracies are not especially committed to the practice. And that kind of basic set of concerns uh, 
kind of informed both my professional and academic life. So at one point, um, before I entered into graduate school, I worked um, for uh, NGO that was trying to promote democracy. And I kind of realized during that experience that that uh, kind of issue I had observed in Chicago in the 80s, that many people who were participants in democracy or something like it were in fact opposed to the practice or what I thought of as the practice wasn't just something that was distinctive about the United States, but was uh, true more widely uh, outside of the United States and in other countries. And uh, it was with that idea, I had that idea in mind when I went to graduate school in to pursue a degree in political philosophy. And, and it's kind of that basic, uh, it's not really a paradox, but that basic situation that I've been working on uh, really uh, for the last almost 20 years, I would say. <laughs> you know, it's interesting. Um you know, I, 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 I read a lot of philosophy books for this uh, program and um, the, the number of authors who have a story that has that a similar kind of um, arc to the one you just told is pretty staggering that there was some, you know, ex formative experience before they even conceived of themselves as having academic interests <laughs> that then become the sort of uh, the, the North Star for an entire academic career. Um, and in the case of political philosophy, it's really interesting um, because we political philosophers, I think, you know, part of part of our job is to sort of establish reminders that all of this familiar stuff is really very, very puzzling at the end of the day. Does that sound right? I, I think that's right. And for me, I think what was fortunate uh, is that because I had this interest, uh, it allowed me in a way to be slightly in advance of the political situation that made the thing that I care about, anti-Democrats and democratic regimes, salient. So this was my interest in a kind of uh, existed before the uh, the Arab Spring. It existed before, certainly, uh, the kind of reemergence of populism in Europe. And, of course, the election of Trump and, and January 6th. And so, in a way, following, I think that following these kind of passions that you have, if you will, uh, these intellectual passions are a uh, are a useful way of avoiding kind of just thinking about the thing that's in front of you and maybe anticipating something that will come. Um, yeah. So I, but I think you're right. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's fantastic. Um, and this is a very timely book. Um, even if the, uh, the academic and conceptual interests, uh, are longstanding, uh, the, the topic of, opposition and seeing the opposition as legitimate um, is uh, is really, I mean, is really important, uh, especially in the U.S. right now. Um, uh, but not only the U.S., I suppose, unfortunately. So why don't we take that opportunity then to, to get to, to talking about the book? And I want to begin with the big picture, which is makes for a nice segue uh, uh, with your uh, with your biographical stuff. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the, the background? Um, so the various ways in which um, opposition, political opposition in particular, has been conceived and understood and the ways in which various theorists have taken up the issue of opposition as a way of thinking about legitimate and non-legitimate or democratic and non-democratic modes of political engagement. Sure. Um, I think that there are kind of two features of the background. So there's both a kind of practical 
real world uh, part of the background that I was getting at before and an intellectual one. And practically, I think the key thought or idea or inspiration for this project is the idea that there's something kind of magical about the fact that people who are in power are willing to give up power because of the outcome of some competition. Um, and, you know, even though we tend to, I tend to take this for granted as something that's just part of the normal atmosphere of politics. If you think about it for any amount of time, I think it's actually kind of strange that people are willing to do this. And uh, I was kind of, I have been kind of curious about that. And at the same time, there are all these challenges to this basic kind of, I, you know, I don't want to push too much on the idea that this is a miraculous phenomenon. Obviously, there, there are theories, rational theories about why people are willing to do this. But nonetheless, you know, uh, as I was suggesting, with just a little bit of thinking about the world, you can see that this practice is more, uh, is less stable than you might originally think. And so that was the kind of practical uh, nature of the concern. So you asked about what are the kind of prevailing theories? Well, the the kind of standard historical theory about legitimate opposition, uh, which dates from the 1950s when people were thinking about this because they were trying to distinguish uh, kind of Western competitive regimes from uh, what, they, what they might have thought of as Eastern uh, communist regimes that had elections. And so they were focused on this idea of legitimate opposition. And so you had people like Robert Dahl, uh, Richard Hofstetter writing about this practice that was meant to distinguish non-communist regimes from communist regimes. And the basic thought was that the practice was invented um, with the invention of political parties in the late uh, 18th century, early 19th century in Britain and the United States with the invention of democracy. That was the kind of idea and that this was a, a tradition, a, a peculiarly Anglo-American tradition that had spread beyond that. So that was the kind of historical perspective that opposition, as we think of it, was invented in the modern era and that it was tied with parties. And then, as you suggested in your introduction, the kind of standard theoretical view was that opposition was, you know, just a, a key feature of democratic politics and that its value was necessarily tied um, to uh, democracy. And there are many different uh, theories like this so that they can be minimalist theories that we might associate with uh, Schumpeter, who really defined democracy as competition, or more recently, Adam Jaworski, who's, you know, these are people who are uh, identified with this kind of minimalist view of democracy. But even kind of what you might think of as democratic maximalists of whatever kind, but theoreticians who think about what democracy could be like under egalitarian terms, they've also associated this kind of practice as being a, just a key and basic element of democracy. And so that was, those were the kind of, uh, that kind of historical view and that kind of normative view uh, were the background against which uh, I was thinking. And as a graduate student, um, I wrote a, a book, I mean, what was then a dissertation and now a book on the idea of militant democracy, the steps that one could legitimately take uh, in the face of kind of anti-democratic activity. And in the process of doing that research, I kind of uh, had the realization or I had the suspicion that this story um, about the rise of opposition uh, was 
bunk and obviously false. And that was the kind of initial um, kind of idea that's, that got me started on this project. Great. And, and let me just uh, make sure that, um, uh, that, I, that I've understood it. Uh, maybe a, a subtle point, but uh, I think it would be important. Um, the claim uh, thus far, it, it, you're not claiming that opposition is not um, uh, important in democratic regimes or is, is not an important practice for democracy. The target of, of, of your counter story is that um, the idea of legitimate opposition is not indigenous to, uh, you know, democratic thinking uh, from the past 150 years or so. Is that right? Yeah, that's exactly right. And so, um, so, so I'm grateful for the clarification. So yes, the thought is, is that opposition can certainly be democratic. You can imagine a kind of an egalitarian regime, either in the real world or in the ideal world that has the practice and where we would have no trouble at all in thinking that the practice is yeah, an essential part of democracy. And were it to fail in one, a regime like that, were somebody to stay in power after a fair election, we would say that democracy in that polity of that country has failed because opposition has failed. So you're exactly right in drawing that distinction. At the same time, uh, I think what I was trying to do, as you're suggesting, is by making us rethink whether the practice is essentially democratic or, uh, as you said, indigenously democratic, to allow us to rethink the the kind of practice we have. Um, so the, the thought is, rather than saying, look, we have opposition, therefore our regime is democratic, the thought is we should com- we can complicate uh, that perspective and and rethink what the what the value of this practice is. So that's I mean, that is a key kind of part of um, of the project. you know, it's to, yeah. Right. Great. So let's pick up on that. Um, So you contrast, so you call your view an adversarial conception of legitimate uh, opposition. Um, And I take it that it's the contrast is between your adversarial conception and the kind of view that, that you were just laying out the more sort of indigenously democratic conception. Can you spell out a little bit, um, a little bit more about why you think it's important to um, to sort of disentangle the our, both our conception of the practice of legitimate opposition and our conception of the value of those practices. Um, why it's important to disentangle them both from our theory of the value and practice of democracy. Sure. So I, I, I'm going to split the, my response up into to two parts uh, to, to, to say something about why I, I call my view the adversarial view, um, but then also to talk about, um, you know, why I think it's so important to disentangle opposition from democracy. And there, are, as you can imagine, there are many reasons uh, why I think it makes sense. So the reason why I call my view the adversarial view is because I think the, in a way I'm being slightly tendentious or I'm trying to draw a contrast between views in democratic theory that imagine how democracy could be and imagine people kind of working together, um, cooperating to pursue kind of common ends. And that is a common view of democracy. And it's, it seems attractive enough for me. Um, 
But a lot of the kind of puzzles that um, are interesting about opposition, uh, puzzles about why people leave power, puzzles about how people who really don't like each other, people like the people I grew up with in Chicago, uh, can manage to work together in a political system kind of go away. Because the thought is once you assume a kind of communal or cooperative view of politics, which many of our you know, colleagues assume, then the kind of the the virtues of opposition or the specialness or the miracle of opposition as I was describing it before, that somebody actually that somebody like Trump leaves power. Um just it dissolves because the thought is that people are motivated by co- cooperative impulses. So the thought is is that by emphasizing that what the kind of heart of opposition is, is the competition and is the idea that people leave power or leave office after they've been, you know, lose an election, that they remain kind of adversaries, but they nonetheless uh, uh, follow the, the norms of the practice. I wanted to say that that's the part that I want to focus on. I don't want to imagine a more idealistic practice and think about what the virtues of that better practice would be, but to really focus on the practice as we confront it um, in the world and to think about, uh, crucially, what would be lost if the, if the adversarial practice that we're familiar with from our, lo- from our kind of normal lives were to fail. So that's, that's why I, I, f- I try to mark out the fact that my view is adversarial. Um, and as you suggested in your previous question, it isn't my view that cooperation is bad or that democracy is bad. It's that I want to say we have something potentially distinct from it. So then that goes to your the, the kind of second part of the question, which is what's wrong with tying um, tying opposition's value or thinking about its value from the perspective of democracy. So I think, the, you know, if you think about the, the practice, again, as we observe it in the world, it falls in many ways, well short of what we think of as standards of democracy. So, you know, I live in North Carolina and it's extremely difficult. It will be extremely difficult, for instance, for us to remove the the legislate the Republican legislative majority in our state uh, uh, legislative bodies because they've drawn the way the districts are. And when they were doing that, they were explicit about the fact that they used race uh to draw these districts, you know, and, and there are court records where people said, yeah, we, exp- you know, we, we did this on purpose in order to, to keep our party in power. And so there is, and the United States isn't unique in this regard. You can go around the world and there, are, uh, there, there's political contestation happening where the rules, you know, fall well short of democracy. And so the, the thought is, is that if our view of the practice, um, depends on a, a conception of democracy, it, it may be the case that there are, our actual political institutions don't don't meet those requirements. So that's that that's one part of it. the The second part of it, again, is that uh, competition amongst people, amongst different parties and groups, has happened in regimes that fall like obviously well short of democracy. So I'm not talking about North Carolina today, but I'm thinking about, as I argue in the book, ancient Rome, where the vast majority vast Part of the people couldn't participate in politics, even though they had political competition. The competition that did occur wasn't equal. People had their votes had different weight. Or another, I think, particularly salient example for me is antebellum America. That's America during slavery. You have competition between parties. Um, 
But nonetheless, certain people got extra votes because they or their neighbors own people under the U.S. Constitution, right? And so I would, I would resist the idea that that regime uh, was democratic. Okay, so there are all sorts of complicated arguments about why we still could use a kind of democratic frame of reference to evaluate those political systems, thinking about do those regimes uh, more closely approximate democracy than regimes without the practice. And I won't bore you with the whole argument, but in the book, I just point out that all, most of those arguments are fallacious. They don't, they don't work in most cases. And so if we use uh, democracy as like the single kind of rubric for understanding the value of flawed practices, we're, we're not really getting our hands around the question of why should we value these practices as they exist and what would be lost if they uh, fall away. Great. Great. Um, let me just ask a, a, a quick sort of democratic theorist question, one, one theorist to the other. Um, as I was reading the book I, and, and came across you know, very early in the book where you give the label the adversarial conception, you know, I was just wondering, like, is, is there a – and, you know, one of your um, uh, – one of your targets for the um, – uh, the kind of cooperative view of democracy is the uh, is is Ronald Dworkin's um, uh, discussion of what he calls the the sort of uh, the, the the partnership <laughs> uh, version of democracy. But I, I wondered if there wasn't um, sort of a uh, uh, a nod or, or 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 some kind of gesture towards Jenny Mansbridge, <laughs> right? The ad, who had, you know was a very well done. I thought uh, influential book beyond adversarial democracy, as if we were supposed to think that adversariality is is an anti-democratic force. Yeah, so that is, first of all, it's absolutely right that the my view is influenced uh, by Mansbridge's view. And the reason why I chose to focus on uh, Dworkin is just because he, he labels his view, the part, you know, the partnership view of democracy. So it's a kind of juicy target, I mean, in the sense that it's, it's antithetical to the way that I want to do it. But you're right in the sense that when, in terms of my intellectual grounding, that when I was in graduate school, the kind of one of the, let's say, dominant views of democracy's value was the deliberative uh, conception of democracy, which, you know, Mansbridge, of course, is associated with. And again, this vision of democracy is extremely cooperative and respectful and attractive in many ways. And in a way, my, the book and my, the problem that I'm trying to solve is an effort to think through whether views like that give us purchase on our particular moment. Of course, with a view like that, and there are they've been influential. One can look at the world and say, well, the world doesn't match up to our view and that's bad. But I, I'm, my effort in focusing on the value of adversarialism is to say, notwithstanding the evident faults of an adversary, adversarial political system, which I admit there are limitations to it, what is lost when it collapses? And I, I think that whether it's Dworkin's view or there's more deliberative views or just other views that assume that that people are well-intentioned and everybody knows they're well-intentioned, they leave a, 
they leave a lot on the table in terms of their ability to describe what's at stake in our in our particular political moment. Great, great. Um, so let's uh, uh, then pick up on the thread here. So um, as you see it, um, uh, opposition, political opposition is better understood as a liberal practice rather than a more narrowly, essentially democratic practice. And you locate the value of opposition within uh, what what struck me as you know sort of a straightforward you know uh, uh, liberal value right political agency um, which you know people who are democratic theorists are able to tell a story about how democracy is tied to um, uh, that that liberal value but again uh, the the point of the book is not to deny the democratic value but to say it's not exhaustively democratic um, can you tell us a bit about um, you know uh, tying up Position to that the liberal value of of uh, maintaining and exercising uh, uh, political agency. So I think the, the I mean I think there are, there are two kind of theoretical background pieces to know about why I'm tying it to agency. So one is that in recent years, as I'm sure you're well aware, there has been a move to rethink the the democratic value of sortition as opposed to election. So using lotteries uh, right. to choose political officials versus um, using elections to select people. And, and there has been a, an enormous amount of really uh, interesting contributions to this from folks like Claudia Lopez-Guerra, David Esland, um, Alex Guerrero, uh, Ellen Landmore. I mean, there's... I mean. Peter Stone. And, and what they've been yeah. trying to say is, I'm sorry, I could list all these people because it's an, it's an industry. Yeah, yeah. it's an industry, and, but they're all very yeah. good. And, and what they've yep. been trying to say is that insofar as we think that uh, sortition or lotteries is democratic, where people don't, in, at least in the most austere case, they're not exercising their agency when, they, when uh, political officials are chosen because people are chosen by lot. If that's democratic, then the essential value of democracy can't be agency, but must be something like equality. And then we can have a discussion. So in a way, I'm persuaded by their argument. I, I'm not a fan of sortition for reasons that I think we'll discuss later. Or I'm not a fan of the arguments or many. I'm mean, a fan of the arguments. I'm learning from them, but I don't ultimately agree with their conclusions. But nonetheless, I think they have changed the way that I think about democracy and democracy's value and have pushed me to think uh, that democracy is, or at least the vision that I find attractive, is fundamentally about political equality. So that's one part of the story. And then the second part of the story is that... Um, uh, there are many regimes, as I've been suggesting, that don't feature that kind of political equality, the, whether it's, I think, the United States um, or regimes like the United States in its past, like antebellum or Britain throughout its history or France before women could vote. I mean, you could go on and on. And so the question is, if those regimes lack what we think of as constitutive elements of political equality, then what's going, what might be valuable there? And so in those cases where you have political, we have explicit political inequality, but nonetheless, people are engaging in the political process. I think that agency looks like uh, an attractive way of, of thinking about what's valuable. The idea that people are able to make decisions on the basis of their convictions, 
um, and try to take action to influence political outcomes is available even under circumstances of inequality. And in a way, my argument, I mean, not in a way, my argument piggybacks on another kind of move, a recent movement or fad or in political philosophy, and that's the work that's thinking about group agency. And so the the thought there is that um, many people together are able to exercise their agency, not as individuals, but as groups. And the political process, uh, a process of opposition kind of allows for that. So on on the basis of those two things, then I make kind of three extensions uh, of that. So the first is, as I was just saying, I I try to argue in the book that Regimes of opposition, regimes of legitimate opposition provide valuable opportunities to exercise agency. Um, and I try to show why that is, but I think it's fairly obvious. You can join a political party. You can try to convince your friends to vote. You can talk with your neighbors. You can oppose things uh, that you don't like. You can write people. There are all sorts of ways uh, to exercise one's agency within a competitive system, even if one doesn't have even if I don't have the same ability to influence the political process as somebody like Elon Musk. So that's one part. Uh, The second part is that, uh, as I was trying to say, is is that I try to show in the book that you can exercise your valuable agency even under conditions of inequality. So even under conditions that are far from ideal, you know, we, uh, you can still exercise your agency in valuable ways. And, you know, there are any book that you've read, I think t- typically has these kinds of things. And in, in my book, I give the example from the, the book, The Princess Bride, where uh, you know the, the, the princess in that book, she has to make a decision about her husband who's been kidnapped, whether he's going to die or whether he's going to be saved. And I argue this is a non-ideal circumstance, but nonetheless, she has an important choice to make and she can she can see her values reflected in her choice. And so there can still be agency exercised under kind of non-ideal, non-equal conditions. Um, and finally, I would the, the thing that I try to do, so then why is it liberals? I mean, why would one defend a regime, the political system like the United States and say that it it uh, is a valuable exercise of agency when it's unequal, right? I mean, in some way, there's, there's something bizarre about saying or what I'm doing in the book by saying, look, these systems are so bad, but nonetheless, they're good because they allow people to exercise agency under conditions of inequality. And in the book, the way that I try to spell out why we should think of political opposition or legitimate opposition as an achievement is by including an analysis of what how elections work in non-democratic regimes. And so I discuss the political system of Singapore and the way in which what I argue is it perverts the agency of its people. So not only is it not egalitarian, and not only don't people have the opportunity uh, to exercise their agency. But in fact, the way the political system is designed, no matter what the citizens of that polity do, they advance the ends of their government. And so what I want to say is that even in the United States, or even in some other regime that you find imperfect, but that has opposition, there isn't that kind of deep manipulation of people's agency going on. Good. Can you, can you give us, so I, um, 
uh, have a former student who, who teaches in Singapore. I don't know a lot else about the country. Can you, can you give us um, uh, some examples of, of of that latter point about sort of um, subverting the agency by making but the 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 citizens agency by making it the case that no matter what they do, they serve the ends of the regime. Now, one example I remember is that you know when you've got the the opposition parties has the platform of just doing doing better at what the ruling party says it should be doing. <laughs> um, uh, but are there other examples that you can that you can lay out? Yeah. So think about think about the situation of a Singaporean citizen. And I have to say that I have students who are from Singapore, and they don't necessarily agree with with my account. So it's it's worth. Worth arguing with. People should, you know, definitely write against what I'm saying. But so, think about the situation of of somebody in Singapore. So imagine the person who's who doesn't like the the current leaders. Um, that person can vote for the current leaders. That's not a an adequate expression of their agency. That person can uh, vote for an opposition party, which has been allowed to run because the regime thinks it's in their interest to allow that party to run. So if I'm an opponent of the regime, I can I, I can vote for an opposing party, but that also advances the ends of the regime. Or I can choose to stay at home and not vote or not work for any group. And what that does is it allows the regime to say, look, no one really opposes us. And so the opponents of the regime don't have any kind of way to act in the political arena that doesn't advance the ends of the regime that they oppose and what i and and it's a it's not a what do i want to say this i think this is an important theoretical point but practically it's not an original point that is in in regimes like this whether it's venezuela or russia or singapore right before the elections in these regimes if you read editorials in the new york times you will read uh, op-eds by opponents of the regime saying in a way, we're we're in a terrible situation because there's no matter what we do, we're going to advance the regime's ends. And so that's what I'm thinking about. Now, one might say, well, what about the people who support the regime? And in the book, I kind of try to carefully show that even supporters of the regime aren't really given adequate opportunities to exercise their agency because their their efforts are superfluous. The the regime has already decided the outcome in advance. Right, right. So there is a kind of um, uh, your account sort of has a sort of a, a modal component. It's the you know even if you support the regime, if it counterfactually were the case that you didn't, you would still behave. <laughs> at least the outcome of your behavior would still be the same. And for that reason, in the world uh, in which you do support the regime, uh, your support is not an expression of your agency. Is that right? I mean, so it's a Philip exactly. ish kind of thought. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the thought is that the the political system isn't sufficiently isn't sufficiently respectful of your agency. So you might because it's even in that case, you're being manipulated. And so while it may be the case that you're happy with the outcome, and you may even think that you exercised your agency, we have reason to think that the political system is less attractive because it's not, as I say, it's not relatively respectful of, of your agency in those kinds of circumstances. Right. So it is like the, the restaurant where no matter what's on the menu, whatever you order, you get that cheeseburger. 
Exactly. So it's exactly like that. Even if you want the cheeseburger. Even if you want the cheeseburger, right? Exactly, right? And so, you know, that is a kind of trickier part of the argument. But in that way, it is, as you're suggesting, like Pettit's argument about the gilded cage and all of that. And and the reason, I mean, that also is the reason to choose uh, Singapore as the kind of um, case to make the argument. Because in a way... You know, it's, from what I can tell, Singapore is an attractive place to live. There are many good things going on. And, and the people, the leaders of that regime, raise the standard arguments for why we, they shouldn't have real competition, because it would aggravate the divides in that society. It would intensify ethnic competition. And I don't think they're necessarily wrong in their critique. But what I want to say is, even in this kind of ideal case where people's well-being is satisfied, where the rule of law is uh, more or less respected. Nonetheless, there is something disrespectful, disrespectful and unattractive about the political system. Great, great. Um, so a lot of the book progresses um, uh, uh, to advance the more historical side of the thesis. Now, remember, the, the you know, Part of your thesis is this conceptual point about the value of opposition being independent of the value of democracy and the practices of legitimate opposition not uh, you know, still having value even when they're not um, uh, constituted by you know sort of bedrock norms, uh, uh, bedrock democratic norms. But there's also the historical side of the thesis, which is that. Um, the theorists that we we began thinking of were writing in the 1950s are mainly concerned with you know drawing a, a sharp distinction between uh, you know liberal open societies and um, communist societies that some of which claim to be democracies in a higher sense. Um, uh, we were looking for a way to draw that distinction, um, and part of the argument is that um, opposition and the value of opposition is. Um, uh, understood and uh, enacted uh, in societies before um, there were um, strong norms of democracy, at least as we would understand it. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that historical side? So um, uh, your story on this part of the argument begins, you know, with uh, uh, Athens and Rome, and then uh, moves uh, through uh, Hume, Burke, and Mill. Uh, can you sort of lay out sort of the broad trajectory of the, the historical thinking uh, about opposition and how it worked in these different kinds of um, uh, pre-modern, uh, at least pre, uh, at least not democratic as we would currently understand it, regimes. Yeah. So the, in a way, the the book is an attempt to reach back to a kind of political theory that I think is less frequently done now, and that's a form of political theory that tries to engage both what we might think of as norm, normative or analytic political philosophy and kind of people who are doing the history of political thought and tries to do both of these things together. And in, in a way, the inspiration or the model for the book was Bernard Menin's book called The Principles of Representative Government, uh, where he tried to argue that sortition rather than representation was the kind of fundamental democratic practice. And uh, he uses history or genealogy to kind of uh, to break through uh, our, our kind of conception that we take for granted that representation is democratic. Um, and using this example of sortition, that's the way he tries to show that 
this practice wasn't always democratic and then allows us to rethink again why it's valuable. And and in a way, I'm trying to do something similar with uh, opposition. So as I said in the beginning, the kind of standard view is that opposition is both modern from the early 19th century or late 18th century associated with parties and democratic. And what I kind of quickly realized when I went into the project, I thought uh, it's clearly not the case that it's not modern because opposition, at least as I define it, which is a rule-based competition for power where people uh, leave their position or give power to those who win, uh, existed in ancient Athens. And I make the argument that uh, Athens had a form of legitimate opposition, even if it wasn't party-based, and even if it wasn't fundamentally electoral, that nonetheless there were forms of competition and people uh, kind of gave up power and that it was regulated in such a way that people who had too much had too much undemocratic power were sanctioned via ostracism. So that's the kind of the, the, that that piece of it is just to say, look, the story isn't fully modern, and then we need to rethink. Okay, then why why did the you know what work does this practice do if it isn't tightly associated with parties? The second piece, as you mentioned, is I talk about ancient Rome, and I think in a way that was unexpected. For me, that was the more interesting case because there they do have elections, there they do have political competition, and there it's fundamentally undemocratic. And that I think that was the that was the kind of genealogical moment, if you will, for me, that really changed my view of opposition's values. So in, in thinking about whether Rome had opposition, and as I suggested, they had elections, people left power, they were, they were real elections. Um, in thinking about that, that really made me, that caused me to rethink, well, then what is the value of this practice? What is the heart of the practice? Or what is the, what's kind of essential about it? And to think about, you know, I, although my argument is focused on agency, I try to make other arguments for the practice. And the, I think what the Roman chapter illustrates, besides the mere fact that opposition existed, or so I argue, in ancient Rome, there's also the fact that opposition is an extremely uh, flexible political practice. And by that, I mean, it can exist under conditions, both that are ideal, as we were discussing, you can imagine it being part of a a fully democratic regime, but in regimes that are far from ideal. And that's normally thought of as a a limitation of the practice, which is why we look for alternatives, whether that's a deliberative alternative or a sortition-based alternative. But what I try to argue in that chapter is that if we think about these practices comparatively, it's a virtue of of political competition that it can allow for contestation under conditions that are far from democratic without engendering uh, violence. And that rather than thinking about that as a limitation of the practice, if we imagine, for example, instituting an egalitarian sortition-based system in the United States, I think we would end up with quite a bit of resistance. Um, you know, and so what I try to argue in those chapters is a, I want us to rethink what's valuable about the practice, but also to think about, you know, what, what might be the virtues of the practice, as I said, beyond agency. So that all sets up, as you suggested, this, the return to the 18th and 19th century Britain, which is classically conceived of as the home or the starting point of partisan competition. So if my so the standard view is like something like legitimate opposition or the idea of it or the 
the practice of it um, emerges emerges with the acceptance of political parties. That's the traditional view. So if my view is right, then we should observe political competition before the emergence of political parties. People should have accepted it. And then we have a second question, which is, well, then what do political parties add? So I, so I try to show, first of all, and I think I do, that people, of course, accepted legitimate opposition before the rise of political parties. The easy way to think about this is they had elections before political parties. And so that meant that people were pursuing power, you know, contesting those in power and leaving power even before parties existed. So I think that's just like a completely obvious point now. But then the, the question about what, why do parties matter, um, what I argue is that the rise of parties, at least in the, from what we can tell from the, the, the history of political thought, is tied to the power of the state. So basically what happens is you get the rise of the modern state, both in 18th, 19th century Britain and in the 19th century United States, and people in power, whether that's George Washington or the prime minister in Britain, are using the resources of the state, the offices, the money, to, to build and maintain their political coalition. And that forces opponents to think about how they're going to organize. So why? So I think that's a kind of interesting historical point and illustrates the value of genealogy. But the reason to care about that as a theoretical matter, as you said, from one democratic theorist to another, is that I think what we want when we're thinking about uh, good political institutions, there are political institutions that could manage uh, our political affairs, is political institutions that are built uh, in the light of the fact that people in power can use the resources of the state to maintain themselves. And what I want to suggest is that rivals to uh, legitimate opposition, rivals to political co competition, may be less able to do that. So again, if we think about sortition, it's not clear in a system that was solely defined, via, where offices were solely uh, given out via lottery, what kind of political forces could oppose then people using the resources of the state to try to maintain themselves in power, to pervert those kinds of systems, where I try to argue parties in the electoral system do that work for us. Right, right. Um, now, can you spell out a little bit, though, just sort of the, uh, you know, I, I, I don't... I don't consider myself an expert in the sort of the the history of political thinking, um, but um, I, you know I found the the treatment of the the sort of Hume Burke Mill <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, trajectory here very very interesting. Can can you spell that out a little bit? Yeah, so there there are kind of two things going on. I think it's um, so what I try to do is I have the kind of main the key theorists of democracy during that period in in Britain are kind of Bolingbroke, Hume, uh, Burke, and Mill. And normally they're, they're treated as kind of uh, opponents, that they have different views of the, of the kind of legitimacy of parties. And so Bolingbroke is treated as a skeptic. Hume is treated as kind of uh, naturally more moderate. And then Burke is seen as the kind of, you know, the figure who embraces parties. Uh, and then Mill is the kind of the kind of endpoint, the kind of emergence of modern democratic theory and understanding what representative democracy would really look like. And what I what I try to argue, at least for the first three, Bolingbroke, Hume, and Burke, is that 
notwithstanding their kind of different views about the, the legitimacy, the justifiability of uh, political part of partisanship or parties, they share a view about the legitimacy of opposition, that competition is good and that people should leave power and that that's an acceptable view. And that notwithstanding what's going on, the changes, they share a view that the 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 people that are the people in power who are using the resources of the state to maintain themselves pose a threat to legitimate opposition and that something like organization or like uh, political parties should be used uh in the face of that threat so you know normally the way these things work as i suggested is you want to you want to use these histories to say these people disagreed and what i want to say is in fact for the most part they they agreed about these two basic issues, that opposition was legitimate and that uh, that organized opposition was legitimate in the face of uh, opponents who were using the state to maintain themselves in power. Um, and what I try, I'm actually, surprisingly for me, much more critical of Mill. So I think rep, like uh, Mill's work on representative democracy is my favorite work in the canon of political theory. I guess that's not surprising as a democratic theorist. I mean, so many ideas, I think, that are compelling come from that work. But nonetheless, I think he is insufficiently attentive to this idea that the state can be used to maintain people up in power in his work on representative government. And because I think Mill is a kind of uh, exemplar of the way that we do political theory today, I try to use him as a case of saying, don't, don't do this. There's a cost to... Uh, not taking seriously the power of the state. And the cost is you have a, uh, a work that is in some ways contradictory and not compelling. Good. Um, th- that might make a nice segue uh, to the, the sort of next historical moment, which is the, the kind of anti-opposition work that emerges uh, among some French theorists around the, the, the French Revolution. Um, now, I, I take it that this is um, uh, a common way of, re- I mean, they're all kind of, everyone, everyone who reads Rousseau has their own way of reading them. But, um, you know, this is a common way of understanding Rousseau, that the, the very existence of opposition, at least at a certain point in the democratic process, is illegitimate, right? Uh, so can you spell out that, that part of the historical story? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a, a view in France I mean, and Rousseau is, I think, classically identified with it. I mean, there are a million interpretations of Rousseau, and one, but there, more broadly, there is a view in France that, in the period leading up to the revolution and and during the revolution, that out and out political competition will undermine the stability of the polity, uh, because there are there are manifest divisions, uh, geographical. Uh, linguistic and otherwise, um, and ideological, of course, that just as a practical matter, that political competition, as they observe it in Britain, will uh, undermine the political stability of the system. And that if people um, are competing against one another and develop, uh, you know, views of politics that are not focused on the common good, that you won't get political outcomes that are consistent with the, you know, in the case of Rousseau, the general will, but are consistent with the well-being of most people. And I, I think that that view, as you suggested, is the kind of traditional 
view of Rousseau, whether that's true or not is a secondary question. But it, it isn't, as I try to show, it isn't merely uh, Rousseau's view, but also as I try to show that it, it's also the view of kind of Condorcet and other other kind of major figures in that moment in both pre-revolutionary and revolutionary France. Right. And, you know, I'm sure we were both political theorists at the time when you had to endure the, um, the not too long ago, the refreshed uh, interest in the jury theorem, <laughs> uh, oh, right. which and did so... look to me like, yeah, which did look to me like, um, you know, it, it again, somebody who followed that, uh, that, that sort of arm's length, um, it did look to me like it was a recipe for, um, for, for telling critics of a democratically reached outcome that their criticisms were necessarily irrational, right? Or, so, uh, or illegitimate, that there was no, that if de once democracy speaks uh, and the jury theorem is realized that the chances of the outcome being correct are so high that anybody who's still a naysayer is necessarily irrational, which always struck me as a real problem for democracy. So I think, I th I think that's right. I think you're exactly right. And uh, it is the case that also I was thinking about the the folks who are thinking about epistemic democracy when I was uh, writing this. And what's clear, and so I think you're right about the kind of question, the, it imagines a kind of politics, not merely where you would kind of accept that the decision might or might not be right, but that you would be willing to say that is the right decision. And I I think that opponents elite, that is inconsistent with my own experience of politics. And I feel like that's inconsistent with, you know, the systems of opposition that we observe. And what I try to show is that that kind of disposition to think of competition as not attractive or organized competition as not attractive and to think of politics or democracy or elections as a way of selecting uh, the right view uh, was extremely powerful in the views of Condorcet and others at the moment of the French Revolution, and that the institutions they designed under the influence of those ideas completely failed to stem competition. That it was a total, it was a total uh, disaster. I think I'm not going to get the quote right, but a very famous historian of the French Revolution, Francois Furet, basically said, you know, that there was, that, you know, that people organized and engaged in political competition because there were. There were ends to be pursued and they had the freedom to pursue it. And so once you get just those two ingredients, competition formed. And, and the problem isn't merely uh, that competition formed. That could be okay. Or started taking place, that people started behaving in a competitive way and started forming, you know, uh, the Jacobin Club and political organizations to take advantage of it. The problem is, is because they, they didn't anticipate that, that they would have a kind of form of uh, legitimate opposition, the institutions they designed were just didn't work in the way that they imagined. And, and there is a way in which that, that is consistent with my skepticism of those kinds of views about what politics is like and what it should be like. Great, great. So, Alex, you've been very generous with your time, and I want to make sure that we close out our discussion uh, with um, the way that the book ends, uh, where you say something about um, the the current state of uh, politics uh, in the United States and uh, the United States and elsewhere. 
uh, and um, the 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 status of uh, legitimate opposition. Uh, I'll just add, um, I'm, I'm guessing I'm not the only person uh, in the country who uh, a couple weeks ago was pleasantly surprised uh, by the relative lack of election denial uh, after the midterms in the U.S., um, although I guess some things are going on in Arizona now that uh, uh, look problematic, but um, I thought that there would be a lot more um, uh, challenging of election results and refusal to certify and all the rest. And it seems that a lot that that's, there's not much of that going on. Um, so can you say something about how the book ends and, and, and what, wh- what this account, um, of legitimate opposition helps us to, to see that we might otherwise not be able to see? So, I mean, I should say, Bob, I'm exactly like you. I was, I was surprised by the outcome that where the vast majority of candidates, even, candidates that maybe had, a, you know, participated in the events of January 6th, um, <laughs> were willing to accept, you know, for the most part, political outcomes. And I, I think that that sense of relief that it sounds like you had, and I certainly had, and I don't, maybe pleasure, I don't know if that's the right word, but like a real sense <laughs> of relief in the right. aftermath of that election, surprise, kind of captures exactly what I'm the sentiment that's at the heart of this book, which is that on one hand, I feel incredible relief that this practice is going to be sustained because I think it's valuable. But at the same time, the fact that ex post, I feel satisfaction that the system is going to remain doesn't mean that my my views about the limitations of our political process ex ante are wrong. That right. is the fact that people, you know, people spend their time making it difficult for African-American people to vote the fact that there is this gerrymandering going on, the fact that uh, certain people are able to exercise so much more political power unjustifiably than others, all of that remains true. And so uh, what the book is intended to do is to say, how do we make sense of these two different ideas? The one, this deep sense of, of satisfaction and relief that this political system will keep on ticking over and make sense of the fact of our deep dissatisfaction with the the democratic uh, insufficiencies of that system. So I think what my book is trying to do is to try to explain or to try to give credence to your to your sentiment and my sentiment in the aftermath of this election. And I, you know, just as a kind of coda or another point, I, I mean, I think what is besides the mere fact that people left power, what is attractive about opposition or systems of legitimate opposition is that it provides people the opportunity to improve the political system. So there are these limitations, certainly in North Carolina, where I live, there are these limitations in Wisconsin as well and in many other places. But the thought is that the political system, flawed though it may be, nonetheless provides an outlet for us to try to improve it. And that is something worth valuing on my view, something worth uh, trying to defend. Well, that's a a fantastic note uh, to end on, and uh, I couldn't agree more. Um, so, Alex, um, thank you so much uh, uh, for for joining me on New Books in Philosophy. It's a real, it's been a real pleasure talking about uh, your book, which is really fantastic, and I, I recommend it to anybody who's interested uh, in the themes. Um, so, thank you. Thank you, Bob. Um, and before we end, let me thank the, our listeners. Um, thank you for joining us uh, for our discussion. I've been talking to uh, Alexander Kirshner. 
His new book is published with Yale University Press. It's really fantastic. It is titled Legitimate Opposition. Thanks for listening and bye for now.